Pacific Rim was released in 2013. It was directed by Guillermo del Toro and it starred Charlie Hunnam, Idris Elba, and Rinko Kikuchi. It went as quickly as it came. Most people see it as another summer popcorn flick, something they can just watch for a few hours and then go about their business. The sequel, released five years later, was truly forgettable. And with that, the world created by Travis Beecham and Guillermo del Toro was shelved, never to be explored or seen again. As time has gone on, I've revisited this movie on countless occasions. It's a simple story that appeals to my innermost desires, to the child within me that refuses to grow up, and I bet the same can be said for a lot of you. It has been described as the closest thing we will ever get to a real-life anime, and that's a description I won't dispute. I won't go and try to make the case that Pacific Rim is a masterpiece. I don't want to throw that word around on this podcast. It deserves to be used when dealing with something truly special. However, I do believe that it's a great film, and as time goes on, it will be appreciated for what it truly is, a modern cult classic. Hello my freaky darlings and welcome back to another episode of ABR. I wasn't exactly planning on covering this movie so early. I wanted to wait a bit longer, but having just seen this movie a few nights before, I got an itch that I knew I wouldn't be able to scratch unless I did this. And so, here we are. I remember thinking two things when I saw the trailer for this movie. One, that movie is gonna bomb at the box office, not because people don't like action movies or they don't like Guillermo del Toro, but because it's the year 2013, and by this point, the giant robot movie wave was kinda on its way out. Remember, we had gotten so many Transformer movies by this point, people just didn't care. And it didn't help that as the sequels came, the quality of the movies diminished, and those were characters that people knew, that they loved. And now this. Imagine this conversation for a moment. Oi, what's that movie about then? Oh, Pacific Rim? It's about monsters that come from the ocean and giant robots that have to fight them. So, like Transformers then? Well, yes and no. It's more like Evangelion or Gundam. What the hell is Gundam? It's, it's like Transformers. Oh, so a ripoff of Transformers. Cool. I apologize to you for the accent. Anyway, how many times did that conversation play out? I'm sure that it happened more than once, especially in the last 10, 20 years. Hollywood doesn't do original stories anymore. Everything they do is based on books, comics, or worse. In those days, they were remaking everything underneath the sun. Remember The Thing? Or Ben-Hur? How about Total Recall with, what's his name? Ah, what is his name? Ah, Colin Farrell. That's his name. I saw two of those movies. And while The Thing was passable, Ben-Hur was an absolute mess. Just a waste of a film time and resources. I mean, come on, how do you not kill Misala? That was the whole point of the movie. Instead, they'll just ride horses into the sunset. Happily ever after, some nonsense like that. It's not even worth my time to talk about him. But here I am, talking about him. A movie based on an original idea with some inspirations from what's been built before. But other than that, it's original? Oh, that's a risk. And to this day, Hollywood won't take risks like that. But Guillermo del Toro is Guillermo del Toro. This is the guy that made Pan's Labyrinth and the Hellboy movies, the good ones. 
If there was one guy who had the guts to pull that off, it was him. I'm still waiting for him to adapt Attack on Titan on the big screen. We need a proper adaptation of that. I know the Japanese made their version, and it was fine. But if you want something great, you need to throw real money at it. And there was a time when Guillermo del Toro's name was being thrown around as the best man for the job. Sadly, I just don't think that's going to get made anytime soon. Too much time has gone by. And most of the interest that series had on people, as Wayne, is not gone, but it's not what it was before. Okay, so that was the first thing I fought. I'm not going to make any money. And no one's going to care about this thing. The second thing I fought was, man, that is the coolest thing. Look at that giant robot. And I was hooked. And then when I found out that it was Guillermo del Toro who was the man behind it, directing, I was even more hyped for it. I'd seen the Hellboy movies when I was younger. I saw Mimic. And the one thing I know about the man to this day is that he takes his craft seriously. Hellboy 2 has elves in it and fairies. And there's no tongue in cheek. Nothing to diminish the fact it's played serious and there's so much respect to the story and the characters. It sucks you in. It gets you invested. And that's the mark of a good storyteller. And the director is so critical to that. If anyone can make a movie about giant robots fighting giant monsters like Godzilla but ramped up to 11, it's Del Toro. And he delivers. And I want to tell you why. But before I do that, when I got to thinking about who this movie was really made for, the strangest thing popped in my head, and it was Power Rangers. Growing up, I'd never really got into Power Rangers, and there were probably two solid reasons for the fact. One, when I was really young and impressionable, I'm pretty sure it was my mom's that didn't let me watch Power Rangers. I'm pretty sure she didn't want me going around kicking everyone and everything in sight. And two, by the time I had gotten old enough, I was simply watching other things, so it's not something I ever took an interest in, but something I do remember, having seen a few episodes in passing, was the obvious fake rubber monster in the fake city fighting a fake robot. It looks and sounds hilarious now, but it's not meant for us, it's meant for kids, and it absolutely works on kids, and it all comes down from Godzilla movies. Like the OG movies from back in the day that come straight from Japan. Those movies had such an impact on their culture and our culture as well. Earlier on, I mentioned Evangelion and Gundam. And while those shows came to the States later on, in Japan, that stuff was like Disney. It was everywhere. The concept of giant robots and kaiju, their word for giant monster, that's just permeated into their culture. And it's what they exported to the rest of the world. Just like the Americans did with their culture as well. Mecha animes dominated the 80s and continue to be made to this day. It's a great way to tell stories that dazzle and amaze their viewers. My father tells me all the time that I used to watch mecha animes as a child. Like before I could even formulate memories. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. I don't know if Travis Beecham or Guillermo del Toro were exposed to this genre of storytelling. But the influences, the homages, yeah, those are there. Now, I'm not a fan of spoiler-free reviews. Ugh, I'm gonna leave that in. And that's not what this is. I'm not reviewing Pacific Rim. If I was, I would say it's a great movie. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. Go rewatch it if it's been a while since you've seen it. There, boom, that's my review. Instead of doing that, let's do something different. 
Travis Beecham and Guillermo del Toro had a vision right from the get-go. And they went big with it. So let's just jump right into it. Why is Pacific Rim a modern cult classic? Why should you revisit an 8-year-old movie that was played with a cash grab of a sequel? First and foremost, let's start with the plot. Simple enough, you say. There's giant robots on the cover. They fight giant monsters. Humanity wins. Just like all these other stories that tell what's basically the same thing. But is that really the case? To you, I say, you couldn't be more wrong. And it has nothing to do with how you describe that plot. But the lack of respect that your statement conveys. Pacific Rim starts with a voiceover. And while it could have shown instead of told, it does this for a reason. Most movies that feature monsters, especially monsters of the giant variety, they spend a lot of time on the reveal. Remember the 90s Godzilla with Matthew Broderick and... Uh, who else was in that movie? Let me see. I remember John Reno, but he wasn't even a protagonist in that. He just kind of shows up later on. Let me see. Uh, no one of note, except for maybe the dude that used to play Apu on The Simpsons, who doesn't play Apu anymore because... Reasons. You remember the marketing for that movie? I sure do. It was some of the best that I've ever seen. And the only movie that did it before in those days, well, a movie that kind of fits a similar category, was Cloverfield. Dude, looking into it, Cloverfield came out in 2008. That was 10 years later. Okay, so they're not exactly contemporaries, but still, getting back to my point, the marketing guys in that movie had to get creative. Because I'm pretty sure they had one mandate that they absolutely had to follow. And it was that they couldn't show Godzilla in the trailers. They couldn't show him in the ads. Nothing. If people wanted to see Godzilla, they would have to go watch the movie. And the same was true of the Cloverfield monster. You want to see what it looks like? You're going to have to cough up the dough to go watch it. And it worked like a charm. So they got creative. I can't quite remember the ads for Cloverfield. Or if there even was any, because it just sprung up out of nowhere. But I remember the ads for Godzilla. It was massive footprints in jungles, a giant claw in the middle of the city, on the posters. All they could show was its massive eye. So when you're sitting in that theater for the first time and you see what it actually looks like, it's a moment. You're taken aback, and that's how it's supposed to be. I don't want to rant too much on this subject. But I hate how movie trailers now, they just basically spoil everything for the audience. They don't hold anything back. Like, if they don't do that, people won't go watch. That's not true. A trailer is supposed to be just that. It's a trailer. A promise of things to come. You want to see the whole vision? Go watch the film or the show. But it's like, we've forgotten that notion. Anyway, Pacific Rim is not Godzilla. It doesn't focus on a monster reveal because it's not that kind of movie. You see the first kaiju in the first two minutes of that movie. Instead, through a voiceover, an impressive montage, we see a world that's familiar enough to be our world, except this world is being besieged by monsters that are coming from another dimension. After all conventional weapons have failed to bring down these kaijus, the world comes together and they pull their resources and the Jaeger program is born. The Jaegers start to win, and even though the world is still under attack, as long as the Jaegers can hold the kaiju back, the whole situation becomes the new norm. That is until the kaiju change, and the Jaegers start to lose. 
This is where the story starts properly, as we see the Becca brothers hop into a Jaeger to fight a kaiju that has appeared off the coast, and well let's just say that the fight doesn't go well. It's five years later, and the situation has gotten worse. The nations of the world have now devised a new strategy. They want to build a wall. A wall that's gonna keep those things out? Yep. A, a wall is definitely gonna do it. In any case, Raleigh Beckett finds himself building that wall that's gonna protect Alaska when his old CEO, Marshall Stacker Pentecost, awesome name, tracks him down and asks him to step inside a Jaeger once again. One more mission, one more go at the breach, the interdimensional portal that connects the Kaiju dimension with our own. He goes along with it, and he finds himself in Hong Kong, where the rest of the Jaeger crews have been assembled. If I'm being somewhat vague about all the details, it's on purpose. I want to cover all the little details as we go along, and the plot is just kind of like a foundation for what happens. We're going to get to cover everything and everyone, eventually. He meets the genius that's restoring the remains of his Jaeger, an engineer and pilot in training, Mako Mori. They strive to find the co-pilot for Raleigh, and through circumstances that become apparent in the movie, it's Mako who gets to pilot with him. The plot moves along, and we see the Jaeger teams defending the port of Hong Kong from two Jaegers at once. These fights are bombastic, they're spectacular, massive, but still easy to follow. The editing is top-notch, and I'm gonna bring that up again as we continue. Our heroes eventually discover how to get through the breach themselves with the help of our resident research team, who we are also introduced to earlier in the film, and they mount a plan to destroy the breach. The kaiju defend the breach, and after the final fight, we see our heroes succeed and reunite, and the movie ends. If there's one thing we've done here at AVR, it's to encourage our listeners to watch and re-watch certain movies as it is impossible to properly form an opinion of something or someone if all we have is a first impression, a vague idea. And with Pacific Rim, that tune stays the same. Never seen Pacific Rim? Well, I sort of spoiled some of it for you. But go watch it. I was vague for a reason, and my plot summary does not do this movie justice. And in the sections that are coming up, I'm gonna tell you why. It's been a while since you've seen it. Revisit it. I bet you'll be able to spot a whole lot of new details that you weren't watching for the first time you saw the movie. You've seen it a bunch and it's one of your Desert Island movie picks? You're a good man. Or woman. And I already like the cut of your jib. Maybe you fall in the camp of the people I described earlier in the beginning. It looks like Transformers. So that's how it must be. Right? I will concede the following. That there is no originality under the sun. That much is true and it's just the nature of the beast. We can only tell so many stories so many times before everything kind of starts sounding the same. But mate, it's not the story that deserves praise when it comes to this movie. It's everything else. And that's how it works for almost every story out there. If I were to tell you that the story of a besieged princess that desperately sends a message to a no-loyal knight for help and that this knight recruits a young farmhand and a brigand to help him overthrow an evil empire and rescue said princess, that this story would spawn one of the highest grossing film franchises of all time, you'd look at me like I'm some sort of madman. Who cares about knights and princesses in this day and age? But you do. Most of you do. Because that's exactly what happened. It's true that no one cares about generic princesses, 
and the tired story of good versus evil. But again, you do. I know that you do. You care about them when it's Princess Leia, when it's Han Solo, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Darth Vader, and Luke Skywalker. See, it's not the story that matters for the most part. A lousy story can have good characters and still be remembered, but you can't have it the other way around. You can't have a great story with lousy characters. It just doesn't work. Ask the people who wrote Darling in the Franks. <laughs> I kid. But seriously, all jokes aside, it's the growth of the characters in Pacific Rim that makes it a compelling film, and something that stands out from other giant robot movies of the time. So let's dive into them and see the reasons why. Pacific Rim is not a heavy, character-driven story. After all, at the end of the day, it's still a story that features giant monsters and giant mechas, so it has to be fun. However, like I said before, what makes it stand out are the characters themselves, and I'm not just talking about the human characters. The Jaegers and the Kaijus are bigger than life, and deserve to be mentioned as they are what makes the story memorable. Both the Kaijus and the Jaegers have names, and this is done for a reason. The Jaegers are not cookie-cutter machines that can be replaced when one of them gets damaged. They are all unique, in build and in design. The Jaegers look different because they were designed by different nations. They may fulfill the same role, but how they go about it is up to that particular nation's discretion. Let's go more into detail about what it took to bring these creatures and machines to life in a later section. For now, let's begin with Raleigh Beckett. Raleigh Beckett, or Raleigh, is our main protagonist. I say main protagonist because the movie actually has two protagonists. Even so, the story starts with Raleigh. He's the one who gets to do the voiceover and we see him and his brother Yancey head out to pilot Gypsy Danger. The Beckett brothers have been tasked with dealing with Knifehead, a new kaiju that has appeared off the coast of Anchorage, Alaska. Raleigh is the younger of the two, and it shows. We see that they've had a good amount of success as Jaeger pilots, and so our little Raleigh is a little cocky, but with good reason. The Beckett brothers initiate the neural handshake, which is how they synchronize with each other and with the machine, and this makes a lot of sense. I want to talk more about this in a later section. Having said that, Knifehead, well, it gets the best of them. And he pulls Yancey out of the control pot, leaving Raleigh to pilot the Jaeger by himself. A task that's considered impossible, as the neural load the machine demands of its pilot is too much for a single pilot to withstand. We get a clear and precise explanation of all this in the opening montage. And what a simple but concise way of relaying this information for the audience. That's the reason you need two pilots to sync, because one person can't do it alone. Raleigh makes it to a remote shoreline, barely alive, with a Jaeger that's in pieces, and like I've said before, it's at this point where we get a proper opening sequence. When Stacker Pentecost goes out to recruit Raleigh to convince him to get back in a Jaeger and fight, you can see that there's a lot of doubt fear, hesitation in his face, and Charlie Hunnam expertly portrays the look of a man that's broken, of a man that lives in the past, that can't seem to move forward. He walks and talks as if he's still mourning the loss of his brother, and again, because of the world building that the movie has already done by this point, you feel it. Would you really get back into this machine and suffer another loss like that? Why would he want to? Did he decide to quit because he couldn't get into another Jaeger without his brother? 
Was he discharged because he disobeyed orders that led to the death of his brother? The movie doesn't say, and I'm glad it doesn't. Those are details that we, as an audience, are allowed to fill in, and it gives Raleigh a lot more depth than he should have. Pentecost convinces him to return, to face his demons, and he does. It's at the Shatterdome, the Hong Kong base where they keep the Jaegers, that Raleigh meets Michael Mori, the genius that's been restoring his old Jaeger, and the two begin to establish a rapport for one another. It doesn't happen overnight, but more on that later. We see Pentecost take Raleigh and by proxy the audience through the halls of the Shatterdome and it's a good way to explain the plan and introduce the rest of the Jaegers to the audience. The reason I mention any of this is because it's at this point that Raleigh begins to question Pentecost. Something must have changed if the plan is to assault the breach, since it's been tried in the past and it's always failed. Pentecost says nothing. I mentioned this little detail because it's entirely possible that Raleigh would have simply followed orders in the past, but because of his past experiences, he's more inclined to ask questions to make sure he has a full picture of the situation. In any case, Pentecost says nothing, and the tour kind of just continues. Raleigh also reunites with Tendoi Choi, the technician that had helped him and his brother in their previous fights. It's a nice moment, because even though Tendo's moments are small, He's still memorable, and even more so to our main characters. When Mako takes Raleigh to his room, she tells him that she has studied his fighting style and his victories, that she even studied their last encounter with Knifehead. Raleigh asks her for her opinion, and she bluntly tells him that it was his penchant for disobeying orders, his actions that caused them to fail, that he caused the death of his brother. She goes on to say, that he's not the right man for the job. And Raleigh just takes it. Because he believes it. His guilt is so strong. And he knows that she's right. So he doesn't really defend himself. He doesn't talk back. I mean, he says nothing. And again, Charlie Hunnam relays this scene with so much emotion. Extremely well. He does reply to her though. He goes on to tell her that in combat, you make choices, and you have to live with the decisions you make, and that's what he's trying to do, and there's so much regret in those words, like he knows, like he's been telling himself that over and over again. This one scene has so much weight to it, and both Charlie and Rinko do an amazing job in it. It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. And it's a great window into the mindset of Raleigh. Despite all this, Raleigh is no sad sack. He's a man who's trying to make the best of things and to help the operation in any way he can see fit. Later on in the movie, Raleigh meets up with Herc and Chuck Hansen, the pilots behind striker Eureka, the fastest Jaeger in the world. And Raleigh's interactions with the antagonistic Chuck don't go well. By this point, the candidate trials are ongoing and Raleigh is pretty much overpowering the smaller opponents that Mako has chosen for him. These trials are not so much a fight, as much as they are a way of testing their physical compatibility. After he takes down two or three opponents, Raleigh calls out Mako, angry that she's being critical of their performances, when she responds that it's not their performances she's critical of, but Raleigh's. He sees a chance to bring her in the ring and see what kind of medal she's got. While Pentecost is against it at first, Raleigh's remarks 
which he makes in front of a large group of men about Mako, spurn Pentecost to let Mako in the ring. Rale and Mako go toe-to-toe, and they gauge each other's abilities, not just physical, but mental. In the end, it's Mako that comes out on top, using a move that takes Raleigh by surprise. Raleigh doesn't show anger at having lost Mako, which is great. He doesn't make excuses about losing a Mako. He simply declares that she should be his partner, a notion that Pentecost strikes down almost immediately. We see Raleigh inside Gypsy awaiting his co-pilot so they can perform an initial neural handshake and see if they can actually work together. And to his surprise, his surprise, not ours, it's Mako. It's at this point that we see our pilots initiate the drift and go out of sync. We see Mako's backstory, which I'll cover in just a second, and we see Raleigh trying to stabilize her. When all of the danger is safe with and done, the two are now outcasts. They did nearly kill everyone there, and if you saw the film, you know what I'm talking about. This scene used to bug me, but having seen this movie a few times, it makes perfect sense. It's been five years since Raleigh has stepped into a Jaeger. Five years since he's been in anyone's head. Of course the memory of his brother would still haunt him, so it makes sense for him to go out of phase first. Raleigh again has an encounter with Chuck Hansen, but proceeds to destroy him, landing multiple head and body shots against him in a fistfight. He finally submits Chuck by using the same move Mako used on him, this is a nice little detail because it shows the audience that Raleigh is a quick study and is not afraid or proud to learn something from someone else, regardless of their race or gender. It's also of note to see how in control Raleigh was of his own emotions, as Chuck insulted him several times before their fight, and they only reached blows because Chuck insulted Mako. Raleigh and Mako get even closer as the two of them talk about the drift and about Gypsy. The way their relationship, their friendship grows is subtle, it's nice, it's a definite plus to the movie as a whole. It humanizes a movie that's about monsters and machines in a way that's difficult to do. Later on in the movie, when two kaiju emerge, Raleigh and Mako are left on the sidelines until they have no choice but to enter the fight, and they do so well. Raleigh takes the lead as the two fight the two kaijus that are about to destroy Hong Kong and the way they go about defeating the last one is amazing. Let's talk about that later. Let's, let's get to that later. By this point, and with this amazing victory under their belt, Raleigh is a different man. And we see that when Raleigh and Mako have to go on the final assault on the breach. Raleigh tells Mako that he's been living in the past. And that he's never really thought too much about the future. That he has awful timing. It's not a confession. But it might as well be. And Mako knows it. The two fight against three kaiju this time, and after a brutal fight, they get inside the breach. Raleigh ejects Mako out of the Jaeger as their oxygen levels are low, and she goes to the surface. By this point, all his fears and doubts, his guilt, they're no longer the driving forces of his life. Instead, he knows he has to finish the mission, which he does. We don't get a scene where Raleigh is cured, because that doesn't happen. But we do see him learn to have to live with his mistakes and redeem his past actions. Raleigh has a tremendous amount of character development in this movie, but he's not the only one. Let's talk about Mako Mori. The way we meet Mako is one of the most memorable moments in the movie. 
It's a beautiful shot of her waiting in the rain, umbrellas in hand, to escort Pentecost and Raleigh inside the Shatterdome. It's easy to make the mistake that Mako is just the secondary character in the film, but that mistake is quickly rectified. She is in fact our second protagonist, even if she's introduced much later in the movie. As Mako and Raleigh meet, she's not too impressed with Raleigh at first until he speaks Japanese back at her, which takes her by surprise. When Mako takes Raleigh to his room, she tells him that she wants to be a pilot more than anything, she just hasn't had the opportunity. When Raleigh asks her for her simulation scores, she tells him 51 drops, 51 kills, and then goes on to tell him that she has studied his track record. It's interesting to see how she basically tells him that he's not the right man for the job, even though she's never seen real combat. Raleigh could have thrown this at her face, but chose not to. Instead, he tells her he's living with his mistakes, and we see that the words cut deep into Mako. He's not just a flyboy who got his brother killed. He saw his brother die, and in fact, he tells her as such later on in the film. The two go to their separate rooms and we see Mako spying on him as he takes off his shirt and the look on her face expertly conveys that she understands. He's hurt. He's damaged. There's a price to pay when you get into a Jaeger. Even so, she's determined to do so at any cause and we find out why. When we get to the candidate trials and when Raleigh challenges Mako, the face she makes at the opportunity is pure gold. There's a joy, this willingness to fight. Rinko Kikuchi really sells her craft and it's a joy to watch. She finally has an opportunity to show what she's got, to actually get into a Jaeger. The fight goes in her favor, to the point where Raleigh wants her to be his co-pilot, but Pentecost refuses. Raleigh doesn't understand, we don't understand, but it becomes clear very quickly. We see Pentecost visit Mako in her room, and he tells her that he will fulfill his promise to her. He hands her a shoe, made for a little girl, and tells her to suit up. Mako and Raleigh meet up inside a gypsy for the initial neural handshake, but as we've already said, it doesn't go well. We see Mako's memories, we see her past. Mako survived an attack on the city of Tokyo as a little girl. She was rescued by Pentecost. He raised her. He promised her revenge. It seems that the rest of her family died in the attack and she's been waiting all this time to avenge them. It's at this point that we see some of her past actions in a new light. She's critical of Raleigh's fighting style because she wants to fight the kaiju. She wouldn't have done it that way. She would have done it another way. And that's why she speaks out. She's emotional, aggressive in her fight against Raleigh to the point where Pentecost has to remind her to assert more control, which she does, but we see why she wants to get into a Jaeger more than anything. The kaiju took her family. They stole her life. She was raised by the man who saved her. We may not see it, but who's to say that Pentecost didn't train her for this exact moment, to give her this closure, this peace? If the movie followed Mako from start to finish, and introduce Raleigh as the unwilling but formidable former Jaeger pilot, it would be just as good, because we love revenge stories, and this is what Mako wants. Mako's fury, her emotions, and her abilities are evident to everyone, 
And this is what Pentecost warns her about. Mako and Raleigh talk about this and the two grow closer. And when Raleigh and Mako have to defend Hong Kong from the kaiju, she's not lagging behind. She's keeping up with Raleigh. When Otachi, the flying kaiju, picks up Gypsy and takes them into the upper atmosphere, Raleigh remarks that they are out of options. And it's Mako who's got one more trick up her sleeve, activating Gypsy's new sword feature. In a scene that's lifted straight out of an anime, Mako proclaims this is for my family in Japanese and proceeds to slice Otachi in half. And man, do I get giddy every time I see it. Finally, she has taken the fight to them. Finally, she has begun to avenge her family and bring about peace to her mind. As they're about to launch the final assault, we see Pentecost suit up to fight with Chuck Hansen and Pentecost tells Mako that she has to protect them. Mako responds with tears. She will. And it's another one of those beautiful scenes that you're not expecting in a movie that's about monsters and giant robots. In the final fight, we see her reaction to Pentecost's sacrifice and it's not one of sadness. She honors his sacrifice and bids him farewell. She gets worried when Raleigh can't wake up in the final scene and is relieved when he does. And again, the movie ends. Mako is proof that it doesn't matter what gender a character is. If the character is written well, the audiences will approve of it. They will love them and remember them with fond memories. I can go on a whole rant about this, but let's just say this. In the last five years, people have made a big deal about having strong female protagonists who go on to declare that they themselves are strong female protagonists. But we never see Mako do that. She doesn't believe herself to be superior to anyone. She doesn't talk down to anyone. She doesn't have to prove herself to anyone. Mako's actions are the reasons we love her. We also see Mako get emotional about certain things in the movie. She expresses doubt and shame over her actions when she has to. She's excited when she has to. She grows to genuinely care about her partner when she has to. And she follows orders from a man. Because she respects him, loves him, and again, cares for him. I can't see any modern day female protagonist doing any of this. And that's why they fail. That's why people don't like them. Mako was doing all of this in 2013. And because of the way she's written, she has earned a place on the list of best female protagonists ever written. There's no Rays there. No Captain Marvels on that list. Just good characters that win over the audience who just happen to be female. Malco's character is so impressive that it spawned a good number of people online to create what's known as the Malco Mori test, which basically states that a female character has a good character arc if her narrative arc is not about supporting a man's story. Malco's story involves men, but she doesn't need to be carried by them. She doesn't need to be a damsel in distress. To quote Del Toro, She's not a sex kitten. She's not going to come out in cutoff shorts and a tank top, end quote. And they could have done that. But I'm so glad they didn't. It's her actions that make her memorable, not what she looks like. Moving on, Stacker Pentecost has a smaller role than our leading protagonist. But he's still a compelling character, a fixed point, the last man standing. He's the man in charge of the Jaegers and the pilots. And when the Jaeger program starts to fail, he's the one who assembles all the Jaegers at Hong Kong for one more run at the breach. 
we also see how deep his care and his love is for Mako, to the point where even though she's more than capable of fighting a Jaeger, he refuses to let her. This in turn upset her and Raleigh until Raleigh saw Mako's memories and realized how important she was to him. Pentecost actually realizes this later on in the film, when he has no choice but to send Raleigh and Mako out to fight and protect the city and they come out triumphant. He tells her in a very emotional scene that she has to protect them, not the other way around. And again, I can't help but say it again, it's a great scene and you're not expecting it. His arc comes to an end when he sacrifices himself to give Mako and Raleigh a chance to complete the mission. There's this whole subplot in the movie about him dying of radiation sickness and for whatever reason it just doesn't land the way it should. I know I haven't been too critical of the movie, but this is one of those things that didn't really resonate with me. But who knows, maybe it made sense to you. Having said that, or rather, speaking of that, Kirk and Chuck Hansen are the pilots behind Stryker Eureka. Their father and son relationship is tumultuous at best. You can see that Herc had a hard time raising Chuck and has a hard time having a pilot with his son, but they are very good at what they do. Their track record is the best in the movie and Chuck knows it. It was weird to introduce him as an antagonist in the film. Like, he's what Raleigh was in the beginning, but Chuck never gets his comeuppance. We never see him fail, never see him change. It's true that they lost the fight to Otachi, but it really cost them much of anything. Maybe his pride. I would have liked to see more development on their part. But what we get is good. Those silent moments where they want to talk, they know they should talk, but they don't. Instead, they pour their emotions onto the dog they're always carrying with them. That was pretty good. Had the movie been a miniseries or just a series, I bet that, well, I bet they could have done some great things with them. But as it stands, they were good secondary characters, but nothing more. Dr. Nude and Dr. Gottlieb, I love that name, they're funny supporting characters and their contributions to the storyline I am and their contributions to the storyline are important. But they're just exposition machines. There's no real character developments for them as individuals. But together, we see them set aside their different philosophies and come together to achieve a goal. In the end, we see that both of them are correct, and both theories contribute to the overall success of the mission. Gottlieb's predictions about a double event and an eventual triple event come to pass. And Newt's theory leads to the discovery of what the kaiju are up to, who sent them, and why. It's only when they work together and share the neural load do we see that they discover how to get across the breach and close it off for good. And it matches to the overall theme that the movie has been trying to convey all along. I have to mention Ron Perlman's character, if only because it feels as if I do the movie a disservice if I don't. Hannibal Chow is an awesome name. There, he's a black market dealer who deals in kaiju parts, and although his role in the movie is minimal, Ron Perlman does his best to make him bigger than life, and it shows. He steals all of the scenes he's in, and that suit. I want that suit, and those shoes. I'ma get those shoes one day. All in all, there's not a lot to say about some of the other characters that show up in this movie. They play their roles as best as they can. But seeing that it's a two hour movie, only a few characters get to shine because of the time. But it's all good. Hey, we just got through all the human characters. 
So let's talk about the real stars of this movie. And I want to start with the Jaegers themselves, because man, how freaking cool are they? Names like Gypsy Danger, Striker Eureka, Chernow Alpha, they stand out. They're instantly recognizable to people, and they inspire hope. It can be clearly seen that a lot of love went into the creations of these machines and these monsters, all so that we could watch the fights between them with a lot of interest. One of the details that fascinated me the most about them is the way they were created. In Gypsy's case, when we see the Beckett brothers climb into her for the first time, we see things, scratches, all paint, and I love that. Gypsy's seen action has been roughed up. She's patched up after every fight, but there's proof all around her. Inside, you can see the history of their battles. I love that aesthetic. It makes all those machines seem real. The inside of Cherno Alpha is rustic, utilitarian, Russian. It fits. The name fits. The pilots embody that Russian bravado that they all seem to carry. It's true we don't see much of her, but from what we see, she was indeed a formidable fighting machine. The kaiju just overwhelmed her. In comparison, Crimson Typhoon and Striker Eureka are a lot more modern, sleeker, faster, and it shows. Like I said, a lot of work went into these things to make sure the machines were memorable, if only for the short time we saw them in. The kaiju are also unique, with names like Knifehead, Otachi, and Leatherback. They also have unique personalities and do not fight the same way, using their distinctive advantages to destroy the Jaegers. The fights are long enough to hold your attention, to give both the Jaegers and the Kaiju the attention and the respect they deserve. They are long enough to do some really creative things with them, but short enough so that your mind doesn't wander. At no point do you want the fights to end, but you don't get tired of them. The story behind where they come from is only alluded to, never truly confirmed. We don't know if what New saw was accurate, but it's cool to think about, to see them created only to fight and eradicate mankind. As I've stated on multiple occasions and will continue to state, I'm not much for movie themes. It's not that I believe that movies have them or not, but that sometimes people read too much into certain actions or events that transpire in the movies. And as a result, they interpret them according to their worldviews. If people want to do that, I'm all for it. People are people, and they're going to do what they want. In this case, we see that the message is clear. After all, it comes from the director himself. The theme of this movie is about coming together. It's about the fact that whatever monsters we face, whether they be real or metaphorical, we can only face them and win if we come together. That's what the nations of the world resort to when they see the threat the kaiju present. That's what the rangers have to do in order to pilot the Jaegers. It's what Newt and Gottlieb end up doing. We have to come together, ignore our differences, and solve the larger problems at hand. I'm not gonna lie, I'm not against that sentiment. And if we had to face kaijus in our world, maybe that's what ends up happening. Maybe. But let's be honest, look out the window. I'm just not as optimistic as I used to be. So yeah, that's the theme. And I don't know, maybe the idea that you can overcome your fears if you face them with other people. There are some fights we can't win by ourselves. Maybe? See, there I go. 
giving importance to things and ideas that maybe aren't important. I leave the rest to you. Anyway, here's a list of other little details that I caught that don't really have a place anywhere on this episode. First and foremost, the first kaiju attacks on Francisco and it took them 6 days to stop it. It made it 35 miles inward and they had to detonate a nuclear weapon in order to destroy it. So in this world, there's no San Francisco. I don't know how to feel about that. I mean, I hate San Francisco with a passion, but not enough to use a nuke on the place. The Jaeger program, the neural low being the explanation for why you need two pilots to drift and what that does to them, it's magnificent. 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 I knew I recognized the voice of the AI from somewhere. Dude, that's GLaDOS. But hey, it's not trying to kill anyone in this movie, and that's cool. They do a tremendous job of creating scale by showing how massive the Jaegers are in comparison to everything else. I think those are the biggest mechs I've ever seen, not counting Gurren Logan, because those guys were the size of galaxies. When you're in a Jaeger, suddenly, you can fight the hurricane. You can win. I don't know who freaking wrote that line, but I hope to be able to write something as decent as that one one day. One day. The kaiju swim like dogs, and I found that to be funny. That coastal wall they were building went down in seconds. And all I could think of was Attack on Titan. Walls don't work, people. Can't trust them against giant creatures. Raleigh was Pentecost's first choice because all the other pilots he wanted were dead. I mentioned before, but it makes total sense that Raleigh speaks Japanese. Also, how did Raleigh and Mako never meet before? Where was she all these years? Eh, I'm gonna let that one go. Newt doesn't just want to fight the kaiju, he wants to understand them. Kind of like Hanji, again, in Attack on Titan. Yay! When we see the Jaegers, we get musical scores that match their respective countries and cultures. I always like that. And the Russian music is always a win for me, because they always get it right. Newt needs a fresh brain, and Pentecost knows exactly where to get one. That's lucky. Also, do not trust Hannibal Chow. Why do they perform a neural handshake with a rookie pilot and a former pilot and have the weapons on? Okay, so maybe they forgot. Chuck screamed at Pentecost for five solid minutes and he didn't say Jack. Riley asked him reasonable questions in a not so reasonable manner and he loses it with him. What was that all about? All respect is paid to Jaegers, their size and their power. They are formidable machines and I love this. Guillermo does his creations justice. They look and sound like the cruel war machines they're supposed to be. The sword on Gypsy is awesome, and it comes out last because that's how it works. We don't question it, that's just how it do. They stab a dead kaiju baby in order to drift with it. Okay, so can you do that with people too? I'm just saying. Again, Watching Gypsy slice the charging kaiju in half made me feel like a kid again, and I see that as an absolute win. Riley and Mako don't kiss, and I was so happy that they didn't. It's not about that. Their connection is deeper. I didn't mention this in my other sections, but I usually do. Dude, the music fits this movie perfectly, and it was done by the same guy who did Iron Man and Game of Thrones, Ramin Jawadi. What's not to like? Also, the end sequence is pretty cool too. And why not? So, did I like this movie? Yeah. 
I didn't just spend however long of a time I've been talking about to say I didn't. Does it have its flaws? Yeah, it do. And they're easy to point out. But I didn't do that because none of them break the lore or the spirit of the universe as a whole. I think, I mean, they could have just put a thousand cannons pointed at the breach and be done with it. But this wasn't a movie about cannons and the people that maintain said cannons. It's about giant robots and giant monsters. So that's how we roll. In the end, Pacific Rim is a movie that probably won't be made again. Probably can't be made again. I'm sure there was more than a few people that told Guillermo del Toro that the movie wouldn't be financially profitable. And I wish those people would take a long walk off a short pier. This was a love letter to anime. And it's not just me saying this. There's plenty of articles online and quotes by famous people that allude to this. Even if you don't like anime as a whole, it's a well-told story. Not without its flaws, but a well-told story that features strong human characters and impressive action that doesn't get repetitive or bore the audience. If it's not a modern cult classic already, it's gonna be. And all I'm trying to do is to remind you of that. And so, we have reached the end. If you're still here, my many thanks to the whole lot of you. We want to keep going strong, and I know we have to be consistent to do that as a whole. Also, yes, I know there was a sequel. The sequel was awful, a poor cash grab that did not respect or honor the accomplishments of the original. Don't bother watching it, it's a waste of time, it's two hours, I'll never get it back, and that saddens me. So that's why I didn't even bother mentioning it until just now. If you want more episodes, let us know. I still have to sort out the social media and all that stuff, but hit us up. Till next time, take care of yourselves, my fellow travelers, and beware the wasteland.